All right, everybody. Thank you for coming to our Unusual Whales FOMC panel of experts. As always, nothing said here should be construed as financial advice. Please do your own due diligence and research before attempting to make any trades. Just know that trading in general, you should expect the possibility of some or all of your investment being lost. Now, as we always do, I'm just going to gush a little bit real quick about how we're always excited to have all of these macro speakers here with us for these panels. As those of you who frequent these spaces know, I like to keep these panels nice, open, and fluid. So panelists, as always, if you have anything you want to add to what someone else has said or any other points you want to bring up, please feel free to do so. The only request, as always, that I have is that you keep your microphones muted while others are talking, just to avoid any overlap of sound, any echo, etc. Now, as we kind of go through the intros here, as always, please feel free to plug anything you're working on or anything you have coming out or any work you've done or will be doing. We're more than happy to pin it at the top of the space as well. So with all that said, We'll jump right into intros here. As always, we've got our man Joseph Wang, the Fed guy himself up here, welcoming him back as always. He's our go-to Fed guy, headed the trading desk at the Fed's open desk, has a great introductory book that we always like to plug here called Central Banking 101, and is the CIO at Monetary Macro, where you can now find a bunch of macro courses. Joseph, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. This is my favorite space, and it's a pleasure to share it with so many esteemed speakers. I always learn a ton when I'm here. I always learn too, man. It's, it's, every time we have these panels, I just realize how little I know, no matter how much I felt I've learned. Next, we've got Jem Carson, a leading volatility expert. You know we always love having him here to give us his take on the vol space, can explain the ins and outs of charm Vanna and how options change the market. He's the founder of Kai Volatility and Macro Tools coming soon. Welcome, Jim. Hey guys, it's always great to be here. Uh, like Joseph mentioned, this is always my my favorite uh, spaces as well. I feel like uh, I always learn just as much as I put out here. Um, I uh, I will be uh, in Europe for meetings uh, October seventh. Uh, till the 15th so if you're out in london amsterdam zurich milan reach out um you can do that via our website otherwise uh we'll be in austin for rmc where i will be um will be speaking as well um so feel free to reach out uh, that's october 17th to 20th otherwise kai volatility.com backslash news uh reach out uh if you want to get some of our up absolutely do that folks thanks for coming as always jim next we've got Bob Elliott, the CIO at Unlimited Fund, former IC at Bridgewater, and the all-time leader in useful tweet, excuse me, useful Twitter threads during a banking crisis. He's a friend of the spaces, so let's give him a warm welcome. How are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. It's great to uh, great to be on here. Uh, I feel like Joseph and I are uh, following each other around. We were uh, we we did the same media show yesterday, and then uh, here we are today. So great to be on with him. Plus. Gem and Last Bear, always, um, always a, a fantastic panel. I get a ton out of these things, and um, you know, wouldn't uh, wouldn't watch a, a Fed meeting uh, uh, with any other group. So, 
uh, happy to be here. Hey, I'm right there with you, Bob. And I love, I love the discourse you guys all have when you're up here together. So I'm pretty excited for this one. And last but not least, we may have some other speakers coming later on as well to be determined. But a friend of our spaces as well here, Last Bear Standing, an expert on markets where he writes about monetary policy in his weekly sub stack. If you're not already subscribed to that, please go do that. Launched a new season recently, and so far it's great. Welcome back, Last Bear. Thanks for coming. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me, as always. Um, echo what everyone else on the panel has said. Always look forward to these spaces and uh, looking forward to uh, what Powell has to say uh, in, a, in an hour or so. Likewise, and I'm really excited for all of your takes on that. So as we always do, as we kind of rope right into this, let's touch on some general macro background from the last time we spoke till now. Now, August CPI came in hotter than expected, rising 0.6% in August, the largest monthly gain of 2023, putting inflation gauge at 3.7% versus the expected 3.6%. Non-farm payrolls increased by 187,000 in August, but the unemployment rate itself was up significantly from prior months at 3.8%, which happens to be the highest since February of 2022. The United Auto Workers Union launched a strike against Ford, GM, and Stellantis over the inability to reach a contract agreement over higher wages, restoration of benefit pensions, and more, with roughly 13,000 members remaining on strike. Meanwhile, oil prices continue to surge amidst supply concerns, with Brent crude hitting 10-month highs earlier this week. Now, we're definitely going to touch on all of those topics and others as we go along. But for now, the main matter at hand, although there are expectations for rates to rise eventually above current levels, many are still expecting another month of pause at today's meeting. Joseph, I'd love to start here with you and then kick this one around the panel. Is there anything I'm missing in the macro world? And do you personally expect the pause to continue this month? Hey, Nicholas, that was a fantastic summary. And you're absolutely right. So over the past few months, as you really know, we've had some positive inflation news on the inflation front. Um, we even had uh, Fed Governor Waller, who has been a noted hawk this entire cycle, basically go on to CNBC and uh, you know say that he's he's pretty happy with what he's seeing. But as you also noted, it seems like the economic data is coming in stronger than the Fed had anticipated, and also oil prices are rising, and that contributed to a rebound in uh, the inflation rate last month. So. I think everyone is pretty clear that there's not going to be a hike this month. But I, I think, though, that what we want to focus on at this meeting is not so much what they do today, but what they're going to say in their dot plot. So this is a quarterly September meeting where they wouldn't veil their dot plot. And at the dot plot, they're going to give guidance as to how they think the path of interest rates will be. The last time they gave guidance in June, they penciled in one additional hike this year. Since then, economic growth has been stronger than expected. They were thinking that economic growth will be 1% this year in June, and it looks like it's you know, at least 2% so far. Um, and so from my perspective, and I think this is in market pricing as well, this is, there's still a very good chance that the Fed is actually not done and they're gonna hike again, maybe in November or in December. But what I find really interesting about this meeting though is I want to see if they've changed their estimate of where they think our star is. So our star is the rate at which the economy is neither growing nor shrinking. It's a benchmark that the Fed uses to judge the stance of monetary policy. 
So when they want to be restrictive, they raise rates above our star. Over the past few years, the Fed has thought that our star was around 0.5% in real terms. But I think that that hasn't been working out. I think if you ask anyone two years ago, what would happen if the Fed raised rates to, you know, five, five and a quarter, five and a half, everyone would expect a large recession and an unemployment rate to go up. Uh, so, but we've done that and that has not happened. So I think a lot of Fed officials are sitting back and thinking that, you know, the world doesn't work the way that I, I thought it did. Maybe really the, the economy is more interest rate resistant. And so our start has to go up. So over the past few meetings, we've seen the distribution of our star among FOMC members tilt up. The median still at 0.5% real, but it's tilting up. I, I want to see if it actually, maybe the median moves to 0.75 or, or something like that. If that were the case, that would suggest to me that the Fed is believing that we are in a different world now. And structurally, I think interest rates will be higher going forward than they have in the past. That is to say, we will you know, never go back to the world of 2.5% mortgages and so forth, but maybe more along the lines of um, you know, what we see now. So. I think that's that's what I'm interested in looking at today. I think a lot of really good insight there, Joseph, and I will uh, I'll stop holding my breath for that 2.5% mortgage rate then, I suppose. Does anybody have any comments on what Joseph said there? I'm happy to jump in real quick. Uh, I mean, those that tune into this regularly will know that for about two years, I've been banging on the populism drum and the effects that that has on labor costs, um, not to mention the protectionism that it drives, um, and uh, in driving protectionism, the amount of uh, competition, uh, you know, the, the geopolitical competition we begin to see, which drives uh, both uh, wars in terms of economic wars, as well as hot wars, as well as resource scarcity. And everybody, you know, that has a resource uh, kind of, using it as a lever against one another. Uh, these have all come to fruition, and each month we go forward, we see more and more of it. I don't think you have to look very far to see the labor disputes anymore. Uh, that was in question for a long time. Uh, the geopolitical uh, wars or the resource uh, leverage, these were all things we saw in the 1970s that drove structural inflation. I think the problem is everybody looks at one number, CPI, and says inflation is one thing. Uh, inflation is not one thing. Inflation is, uh, has cyclical effects uh, that can be controlled to some extent by uh, monetary and, 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 and physical policy. Um, but there is another part, which is really um, what is happening to the distribution of money, what is happening to the velocity of money, and that is driving structural inflation. And so this theme that I've talked about for quite some time, again, structural versus cyclical inflation is something that's so critical to understand. We are still trying to control a structural problem, a demand push economy that we've created that's fairly inevitable at this part of the cycle with cyclical uh, measures. And those structural pressures, which we've been talking about for several years now, continue to get worse and worse. Everybody uh, kind of poo-pooed, again, the the, uh, the fact that we would have higher oil when we got that little dip, um, the reality is there is a commodity put out there. OPEC is seeing to it that is the case, and there are going to – it's never going to go in a straight line. But as uh, supply and demand in the market and positioning uh, alleviate some of the pressures uh, of, of the voting machine 
the weighing machine obviously ultimately wins out, and that's what we're seeing with oil now um, as well. So the trend continues higher. Uh, it is not going to be a straight line. There are cyclical pressures down, yes, but the demand push economy and the structural effects are alive and well, and we continue to see that under the hood. Beautiful. Thank you, Jim. And we'll definitely touch on more of that a little later on, um, as well as your comments on oil there, too. For now, Bob, you recently wrote, quote, a pause before inflation is actually beat is not good for the long end and that a pause instead shifts tightening to happen to a long end yield rise and a drop in stocks. Now, Bob, what does this mean for the bonds market? Should the pause continue at today's FOMC? And also, if you don't mind, what actions by the Fed would you personally wish to see, Bob, in order to bring down inflation per their mandate? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of folks, uh, you know, like if we take a step back and you look across all the big developed world central banks, I think most of them are are indicating that they are you know, settling in for a pause in rates or, you know, very soon and and whether they hike 25 basis points or more or, or not from here is not really the thing that matters. It's mostly, you know, they're basically the end. The end of the tightening cycle is near and that's coming at a time when if you scan across, you know, the actual like core inflation data and I'm saying the reported data, what what do you see is that none of them are close. Like, and I think that's an important thing. Like, like the ECB is, is talking about pausing at a time when, you know, inflation is between five, core inflation is five to 6%. Like their mandate is two, core inflation is five to six, and they're, you know, stopping their hikes at four. That is not getting the job done. And so I think that's, but, you know, there's a variety of reasons why they're doing that. They're particularly early in a, in a long-term inflationary cycle. It's often common to see, central bankers be more hesitant to meaningfully tighten uh, monetary policy. And so they're doing what, you know, across basically the whole developed world, what central bankers typically do sort of, you know, three years into inflationary cycle rather than 10 years into inflationary cycle. And that is pause before inflation is beat, um, clearly beat. And as a result, you know, create basically a set of pressures where they haven't necessarily dealt with that structural inflation problem. I think the thing that Jim's saying makes a ton of sense. You got to think, you got to look at reported inflation and you got to think about structural inflation and structural inflation is not yet beat across the developed world. And it's not clear it's going to be beat based upon the activity so far. And so what does that mean? Well, what it means is that the, the short end basically the fed controls right what you know let's say one year interest rate policy the fed will just tell you what they're going to do and basically that's what's going to happen right unless there's a meaningful shock in one direction or another but what that means is that that starts to put pressure on the long end because the long end particularly now across the developed world is pricing in relatively significant cuts to come relatively soon and so if what actually is happening is that uh, the central banks pausing, it's too early for inflation to be fully beat, structural inflation to be beat. That will then mean that the Fed will need the Fed and other central banks will need to keep interest rates higher than those expected cuts into the future. And as a result, 
what's going to happen is that's going to put pressure on the long end to rise a classic sort of bear steepener dynamic as in, you know, the inflationary pressures aren't beat. And so while many folks who hold duration might initially, the knee jerk reaction is to say, oh, the Fed is pausing. That's a good thing for duration. It's actually the opposite because unless the Fed, uh, unless the Fed has tightened enough and other central banks have tightened enough in order to really confidently break the back of inflation, we're likely to see continued pressure on the long end. And I've been, you know, beating that drum basically, you know, all year about how we're likely to see higher highs in, you know, in rates on the long end. And lo and behold, what did we see yesterday was the highest interest rates across the curve that we've had since since back in 2008. So that shows you the pressure that exists on this market and in the bond market. Thank you, Bob. Does anyone have anything to add to what Bob said? Yeah, and if you've tuned into thesis, you have absolutely crushed it on that trade, not just because of Bob, but all of us have really been banging that drum. And I think ironically, like Bob is, um, is saying, uh, uh, it's going to be counterintuitive. You could get the breakout that we're starting to see really accelerate counterintuitively as the pause happens. Exactly. I'll also make a note about Bob's observation that it seems like many central banks are pausing before the job is done. Uh, my perception is that we're kind of moving towards the cycle where there actually are real economic and human costs and political costs as we may go through the tightening cycle. When we went from you know zero to five, that's really easy. But in many parts of the world, they're seeing real slowing and potentially you know, a downturn, increasing job loss. And so there's that political aspect that, that makes it difficult for our central bank to act. I mean, we like to think of central banks as independent, but, but really they, they still have to be accountable to the public. Uh, if you look at, let's say Poland, for example, <laughs> I think they were in the news for, for cutting rates uh, 75 basis points ahead of a major election. Now, their inflation printed at uh, 10% last week, so you know that's really not their target. Or if you look at Canada, for example, their inflation rate continues to be above target, but you have the uh, premiers of three major provinces, uh, Ontario, BC, and Newfoundland, writing letters to the public letters to the governor of the Bank of, e Bank of Canada, asking him not to raise rates anymore. So we're at a point where uh, these... I think economic costs are rising. And so I think central banks find themselves in a difficult situation. They, they, they don't feel like, I mean, some of them don't feel like they can really uh, do what needs to get the job done. And that's exactly what happened with um, in the 1970s as well. In the U.S., I think we're, we're quite lucky. We have a lot more central bank independence so, so far, but that's really because our economy really hasn't felt too much of the bite of high interest rates yet. Thank you, Joseph. So somewhat on the topic of high interest rates, I do want to talk a little bit about, about the, the media's attention to consumer credit lately. So concerns around consumer credit and savings have, have obviously been popping up in the media quite a bit lately. And to that note, delinquencies in credit cards have risen to 3.8% according to Equifax and 3.6% have also defaulted on their car loans. Now, last bear, in your newsletter earlier this month titled Consumer Credit Cracks, The Era of Immaculate Credit is Over, you wrote about these delinquencies in detail. 
So last bear, can you walk us through some of the reasons behind these consumer credit delinquencies and why you feel the trend is likely to worsen and why, as you put it, the strength of the U.S. consumer may finally be reaching its limits? Yeah, so I think it's important to put in context um, what, what we see happening, which is that for the past two or three years, um, the consumer credit was fantastically good. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Obviously, people saved money during the early days of the pandemic that they didn't spend on services. Um, obviously, there's a huge amount of fiscal transfers in all kinds of different ways that ultimately made their way into people's pockets. Um, and so you had this period where delinquencies across any sort of consumer credit was at historically low points. So that's that's an important framing point for the, the starting point. Um, and what we've seen over the past, maybe, you know, consistently over the past year and a half, but really accelerating in the past sort of two or three quarters has been a sort of normalization potentially of those delinquency metrics um, that are that's either going to normalize and flatten out if we were to assume that that we have a soft landing coming ahead, um, or more worrisome, continue to sort of spike upwards in a fashion that you see typically sort of heading into a recession. Um, and I think my perspective, I've actually been pretty positive on the consumer over the past couple of years because of um, the amount of support um, and the amount of sort of durability that the consumer has shown. Um, but what's more concerning to me than sort of the absolute levels of delinquencies, which you could say are not too far off from where they were in 2000 or uh, 2019 or 2018, um, is really the rate of change and the, the reason behind those changes. So if we take it for granted that the reason why delinquencies were so low in the prior period was because of um, sort of a excess excess savings and stimulus, um, and those by all metrics have sort of been one, you know drawn down substantially. And you see these consistent growth in delinquencies. It clearly indicates that at least for some portion of the population, um, their finances are getting significantly tighter. Um, people can't make their their credit card payments or auto loan payments in the same way that they could before, and so that has important implications on. Um, you know, the spending patterns of, of at least certain income cohorts or certain individuals in the economy. It has implications for uh, lenders, um, whether they're deciding whether to continue to extend credit to people um, and also evaluating sort of the existing loan books, um, particularly in more subprime type uh, consumer loan categories. So I think it's um, it's something where you could look at it from one perspective and say, hey, things are not really that bad. Um, but my perspective would be to look at the rate of change and the reason behind it. And I think that for the first time in a couple of years, what we've seen is what I would call material weakening in um, at least those consumer credit metrics. So it's definitely a red flag that has started to pop up and is, is something that I think you can't sort of ignore at this point anymore. Really great points as always, Last Bear. Does anyone have anything to add to Last Bear's take there about consumer credit? So I, I do want to keep diving down this vein a little bit more real quick. So for months now, many, including Michael Guyad, have been warning of a potential credit event, especially given the aforementioned delinquencies and you know the notion of corporate debt overhang. So Joseph, you recently did a space with Michael Guyad and Danielle, I believe, and I'm hoping you can kind of shed some light on this topic for our listeners today. So, Joseph, what exactly is 
the supposed credit event and are we already seeing significant signs of it? Yeah, I, see, I think there's some concern that uh, you know, there, there might be some weakening in credit, but from my perspective, I, I think that's hard to see. So, I mean, first you could look at market-based measures of credit spreads and, and they seem to be totally normal. There, there's nothing alarming you can see there. Uh, you can look at, um, let's say, private credit, which has been very popular. Now, there's less, much less public information there, but there is still some. Uh, Proskauer Rose, a law firm that deals a lot with private credit, actually has a private credit default index. And according to that index, defaults have ticked lower uh, quarter over quarter and are still within usual ranges. Uh, if you hear the earnings calls of the uh, business development corporations, which are basically publicly traded private credit funds, and you know their default rates are fine as well. Um, I think where you might see a little bit more concern in credit is the loan loss provisions in the commercial banking sector, which have ticked up a bit. But I think historically, if you take that as a percentage of assets, that, that's not super concerning as well. So from my read, I, I don't see that we have really significant credit concerns so far. And my sense, my best guess for that is because when you have, let's say, 6% Six seven percent of uh, you know fiscal deficits. You continue to pump money into the economy, and as long as money continues to be pumped in, there's cash flow that can be used to pay uh, to pay that. And also, I think the BIS had a, had a really really good piece uh, that just came out recently that shows how uh, the U.S. Comp corporations have both significantly turned out their exposure to debt, relied on fixed rates, and I think just as importantly, uh, they kind of overborrowed uh, heading into heading out of COVID because of the high degree of uncertainty. So they actually have a, a lot of cash, more cash than they need. So I think that really buffets some of the uh, potential risk for credit. I think the last year makes some really good points about credit on the consumer side. You do see delinquencies for auto loans and credit cards tick up, and that's definitely something that worth worth looking at. But just from my personal perspective, I find it, I, I try, I'm trying to square that with the overall, you know, low jobless, high wages growing and unemployment rate very low. I, I wonder if perhaps there might be some cultural shifts in how the public perceives credit. I mean, I think for the past two years, we've basically been socializing the public that it's okay to sometimes not pay your bills. We did that for mortgages. We did that for student loans. And in some jurisdictions, we also do that for items in supermarkets and, and uh, pharmacies and so forth. So I wonder if there's a cultural aspect to these, um, I guess, rise in, in defaults and delinquencies and some of the consumer space. I'm starting to wonder if maybe Joseph has access to my bank account with that last comment. So I see two hands up, Last Bear and Jem. Let's start with Last Bear here and then kick it over to Jim. Yeah, I, and I just I want to say that I actually agree. And it's the tough thing about talking about like consumer credit is people will think that you're saying that there's going to be another 2008, you know, credit crisis kind of thing. And I don't think that that's the case for all of the reasons that uh, Joseph just laid out. I think if you look at financial comp or sorry, non-financial companies, so basically large corporations um, look to be in fine shape for the most part. Um, I don't think that there's like systemic risk involved in sort of a credit event because the large actors are in such well-capitalized positions, broadly speaking. And so, my perspective on the consumer credit thing is more of a sort of a an indication about where some consumers might be and what that might mean for the sort of broader trajectory as the, of the economy as opposed to 
being like deeply concerned about like a credit event that's going to upend the banking sector or something like that. So I just wanted to clarify that point and sort of agree with most of the points that Joseph just made. I, I couldn't agree more with both these guys. I think people have been calling for the credit event and uh, the, you know, uh, the trendy nature of inflation for uh, going on three years now. Um, the, the truth remains, Means that what's getting credit expansion is job security, uh, wage gains. Um, yes, we had uh, a fiscal push early that was uh, that that caused a spike, which now we are normalizing too. You would expect delinquencies to normalize to some extent, but the key here is we are running a demand push economy. It is something that nobody has seen for 40 years. We have been running, you know, a capital, uh, you know, push, a, a supply push economy for 40 years, and that has changed. And people have completely, 40 years is forever, forgotten what the power of the velocity of money can be uh, and, and the, the power of uh, what, what protectionism can drive after 40 years in terms of rebalances. This is not going away any soon. Demand is much stronger, and you cannot look at recent data, anything within the last several decades, to look at this data uh, and, and, and draw lines. Um, I'm afraid that's what everybody continues to do, whether it's, um, again, with inflation or uh, with, with credit card data. Um, again, these conversations about credit card data have been going on over a year, um, and all we've seen is the resili resilience of the consumer. Um, so I believe that will continue to happen. Is it relevant? Sure. But it's, it's, it's much ado about nothing in the grand context of what's happening. Thank you, Jim. Bob, I see your hand there. Is there a missing credit event hidden somewhere, as Michael Gayed keeps predicting for months? Or are, are things more resilient, as Joseph was saying, Bob? Well, I feel like if I was trying to get some followers on Twitter, I'd go holler from the rooftops that, uh, that there's a credit event coming. But unfortunately, that would be disingenuous. I think these guys... Uh, uh, have good perspective on what's going on. And I, and I largely agree with them. The, the one thing I wanted to, to, um, to sort of connect to that is I think there's also been a reasonable amount of conversation about the risks of a duration crisis uh, in a lot of ways, the combination of what happened in the UK and then what happened with SVB, like really spooked people and made them worry that we couldn't, the economy couldn't tolerate higher uh, long end interest rates or lower bond prices because um, because that would create problems with financial intermediaries. And I think um, I think what we're seeing actually what we've seen through the UK dynamic as their interest rates have risen, not not today, but in general, their interest rates have risen. And um, and I think what we're seeing in the US is we can push to higher long end rates. It's true there were some profligate uh, entities that, you know, did some irresponsible things and got burned as we saw the rise in interest rates happen. But I think it's important to recognize, you know, in the UK, it's been a year in the US, it's been six months since um, some of those sort of concerns emerged. And from a regulatory standpoint, like, I promise you, every bank in America, regulators have been in there rolling up their sleeves, sitting down, understanding interest rate risk and making sure that that's being handled well.
by these banks. Uh, and the same thing is true in the UK. I mean, there's, you know, good actual qualitative um, uh, journalism about the fact that the regulators went in there and basically made sure that that duration problem didn't exist anymore. And so, you know, when we talk about the pressure on the long end, when we talk about how, you know, this whole cycle can get resolved, like there is no, there is no constraint in terms of the ability for long end rates to rise, right? If anything, um, this is, this is the normal process is that you get, you know, you get the tightening, you get the long, you know, if anything, it's been abnormal in terms of the fact that we've had such a steep yield curve because everyone's expecting easing to happen, right? It's normal for long interest rates to rise. We could easily see long end right, rates rise 50 or 100 basis points from here. Um, and I don't think we're going to see any duration problem, that meaningful duration problem that'll emerge. Maybe the, you know, Bank of Hawaii or something is going to get into trouble, but but that's not a macro problem. That's a micro problem. Um, the the economy can handle, and the financial intermediaries can, from all indications I see, can handle a meaningfully higher long end rate without running into issues. I don't know if others see any uh, see that differently, but that's kind of my view on it as well. Really great discourse there. And it, it seems like for the most part, most are in agreement on the panel this go around. So I'm going to pivot a bit here to the oil topic that Jem brought up earlier. Given recent supply cutbacks by Saudi Arabia and Russia, oil prices have been on the rise, as we've all seen. It's up roughly 30% since June of this year. In addition to this, the U.S. oil output from top shale-producing regions is on track to fall to 9.39 million barrels per day come October, which will mark the lowest since May and the third consecutive monthly drop in output. Now, Jim, I'm going to go to you here first and then kick it around the panel as we love to do. What negative effects could we observe should oil continue to rise amidst the myriad other concerns around the consumer's ability to spend? Yeah, so to direct input to first, uh, um, it is, I want to be clear, everybody is now treating this as a shock, a surprise. Um, you know, we referenced this at the top, but, but this is what happens when the Fed is no longer dominant. We've had a Fed put in the market, right, for uh, for essentially 40 years uh, because their dual mandate have been aligned. Right? If you're in a deflationary environment, they can continue to stimulate to counteract that. But if you have a situation where inflation is a problem, structurally, you cannot do that. That puts the Fed in a box. That gives everybody else a lever, um, you know, an opening. And particularly in a time of protectionism, you know, that's when the last Cold War started in the 1970s, last hot war. Not a coincidence. Last time we had an OPEC crisis. Here they all come, right? So expect more. There is a, um, there is a oil put in the market. There are other resource puts now in the market, which is very different than the, the, the Fed put dominant. And what that does on a volatility perspective is that crushes volatility in those commodities where there is a put in the market, much like a crush volatility in the equity market for the last 40 years. Um, I 
I would expect that to continue in commodity land. The market got that wrong. We were very vocal about that uh, in, in certain commodities, right? That does not mean it's true for precious metals, uh, which, uh, which will, should see higher volatility. But from 30,000 feet, this is just the beginning there. Um, that said, why, how does this affect the consumer? Pretty obvious. Uh, you know, dry, oil, you know, gas prices are a major input to spending, not to mention the impact put uh, that we have for all other um, uh, things that we consume. Uh, this is going to continue to crush margins. If you look at the 70s, um, you know, for certain, for certain uh, uh, stocks, you know, margins got, came down dramatically throughout the 1970s. GDP grew above trend. Despite the market not doing very well, GDP grew above trend, um, much higher than the last 40 years, and even in real terms. Um, so, the problem is not demand, which is what everybody is used to looking at. The problem is profits. And the problem, eventually those profits filter through uh, to labor as well, not to mention the costs that we have seen just in terms of input costs uh, and consumption costs. So it's two-pronged. First, uh, the direct effect, effect is the, ga the gas pump, which has immediate effects. The second effect is, is to margins and income, which eventually trickle down to labor um, through certain assets. I think really good points to make, Jim. So real quick, I just want to briefly welcome Josh Young, expert in the oil investment area. Uh, he just popped in here to give us some feedback on oil. So Josh, I would love your input just kind of as a general backdrop on what's going on with oil. And then I may have another targeted question about oil to kick your way as well. Sure. Yeah. Happy to. I was, I was listening in on this. I only have a little bit of time uh, or I would have waited. I wanted to hear <laughs> everyone's takes on this and, you know, it's always great to hear uh, uh, Jem's uh, takes as well as, uh, uh, you know, ev everyone else on this panel. I really, I really like you guys. So uh, thanks for having me up. So um, just uh, specific to consumer impact in the U S of oil prices, which is felt through um, diesel, gasoline and jet fuel prices, um, which are you know the the products that actually are <laughs> purchased uh, either directly or indirectly by consumers. Um, the the good news is that refining capacity um, was constrained but is expanded, and so that should mean uh, aside from the impact of higher gasoline taxes, you should actually see lower gasoline prices even with higher oil prices um, over the next little bit. Uh, there's also two different refineries internationally that are ramping up with another million barrels a day or so of capacity um, that that should be uh, should be helpful on that front too. So we're seeing refining margins come down a little. And again, why that matters for this sort of higher level conversation is that um, oil isn't the sort of, uh, you know, it's the input, but it's actually refined products that are consumed and that have sort of inflationary or deflationary uh, impacts. So higher oil prices, there's been higher gasoline and diesel prices, but we're actually seeing those come off right now, uh, even with strong oil uh, prices. And that that seems, you know, absent a big refinery fire or something else like that, it seems likely to continue uh, going through this year. Also, I guess, absent a major oil spike. Um, and then in terms of just the oil market, you know, this this current uh, oil price rebound is is pretty 
driven by the combination of resilient demand, which is partly uh, people coming back into the office. So even if um, unemployment starts to pick up a little, you may actually see gasoline demand pretty resilient in the U.S. and various other countries. It's not it's not perfect. It's, it's cracking a little, but it might be more resilient than you'd normally see in a recession. And then, um, you know, the biggest single factor is just OPEC plus has um, you know, has it together, they're coordinating, they've actually pulled a bunch of oil off the market. And so there's sort of this non-monetary policy, sort of other set of actors that are driving oil prices here, uh, as long as there isn't too hard of an economic landing in the U.S. and elsewhere. Thank you, Josh. Does anyone have in the panel have anything to comment on what Josh said? All right, so kind of as a follow-up here, uh, and anyone feel free to to respond, Josh, as well. Uh, there is speculation, much like Josh said, that we might be reaching kind of a, I don't want to say top per se, but it seems like a lot seem to feel that we might be reaching a top in those oil prices. But I want to just play a little devil's advocacy here uh, because a lot of other economists in the space are speculating that things seem a little similar once again to previous recessions that we've faced, uh, drawing those parallels between, say, you know, the mid-1970s where high energy costs, high fuel costs drove up inflation. Now, I'm curious to the panel, anyone please feel free to chime in here. Are gas and energy prices actually reaching that peak that many are calling for? Or, or are you more of the mind that supply remains restricted and prices elevated, potentially robbing people of their expendable purchasing power as it happened in the mid-1970s? I think one structural difference between now and then is that the U.S. is a major oil producer, right? So um, if oil prices rise, in a sense, there's a redistribution of income towards oil producers within the U.S. Um, I think the second point is that we the uh, we are a lot more efficient with our oil. Like your MPG, what you can get with a car today is a lot higher than it has been in the past. If you have a hybrid, you know, 40 MPG, that that's really good. Uh, and so you don't have to spend as much on gas. But at that, you know, price at the pump question, you know, when I look at a chart of gas prices over the last 10, 20 years, it looks like for the last, you know, since early 2000s, gas has been between two and four dollars bouncing around there. During that time, the price of everything else has steadily gone up, right? Housing, wages and grocery store stuff. Um, What should the price of gas be? I mean, I don't think it's reasonable to expect it, although... Politically, I'm sure that's not popular, but I, I don't know if it's reasonable to always expect it to be around, say, 3 or $4. Everything else moves. Why shouldn't gas price moves move up to? I would also just add on the energy topic. Obviously, there's oil, but there's also natural gas. And last year, when you had oil surging, you also had a, a dramatic surge, more dramatic surge in natural gas, um, which was probably more impactful in, in Europe, but it was also impactful in the U.S., um, and nat gas is back to its uh, $2.50 type range. It's about 75% down from where it was maybe this time last year. So that helps, um, you know, in electricity prices um, and sort of utility prices for people who directly use natural gas. So that's at least a small benefit as well. I think this all speaks to like one of the challenges of this cycle is, you know, people who will, go back and, and, and look at the 70s and say, 
well, this isn't nearly as bad as the 70s. Like, definitely, it's not as bad as the 70s because, you know, oil prices went up, you know, multiples. And what have they gone up recently? You know, I don't know, 20% or something, right? It's not that big a deal in the grand scheme of things. So I think one of the key things that we've got to be looking at here is, uh, is you got you to get the sharp pencils and start to think about all the elasticities of those things. It's not, you know, clearly the 70s. It's not that. It's not clearly the 2010s. It's not, you know, not, not that. And, and it's, it's about how, how you sort of go through and think carefully about what are all these incremental impacts. Um, and I think in particular in this, this period, like, there's a lot of cross-cutting things that are going on, in, which, you know, forces a level of specificity and precision um, rather than sort of a narrative. Uh, you know, it's definitely an inflationary environment. It's definitely not an inflationary environment. Um, but when it comes to oil, what I'd say is that I think it's important to recognize that we went from a period, you know, in the last year, up until a few six, six or eight weeks ago, we did get a big disinflationary benefit from gas prices going from five to three in the economy. And so just taking out that disinflationary benefit that, you know, essentially everyone got in terms of prices and shifting that back to a modestly inflationary uh, impulse is something that, um, you know, is is definitely uh, not great <laughs> for for the Fed thinking that they're going to meet their inflation mandate. It was a lot easier to hope for getting back down durably to 2% when oil prices were persistently falling. If oil prices are no longer persistently falling, and if anything, modestly rising, getting to that 2% is just going to be a lot harder uh, on a forward-looking basis. I think I think one of the important to note, and this is kind of stepping back, back and looking from 30,000 feet, is the structural macro um, effects are very, very similar to the 70s. It does not mean the outcomes are all going to be the same. Why? What is the major difference between the 1970s? Financial markets. Financial markets are much bigger, much more dominant. Positioning in them is much more reflexive and has much bigger effects on um, um, and, and under which we, we proceed. Um, I think that's really true. You can see that in oil, yes, it makes for a much less of a straight line, um, uh, you know, on these trends. You know, last time we got to, you know, $120 in oil over a year ago, um, the positioning was incredibly bullish and too one-sided. And what did we see? A liquidation down to, you know, 60-some uh, dollars and caught everybody off guard. Guess what? This time around, we're teasing, you know, near 100 and Brent, positioning is completely on the other side of the boat. Those are the things you have to pay attention to in the context of the macro in this image. The reflexivity has always been, but no more, not nearly as much as it does now with the size of financial markets, not to mention the leverage of derivatives. Um, this is not just true for oil. It is true, uh, yeah, as I talk so much about in, in volatility, uh, the issuance, the massive issuance of structured products and the vol supply that we're seeing as a function of it, interest go higher, is something we have never seen before because we never had derivatives in the 
1970s. We have never had these types of products in the context of these structural macro effects. This is why things rhyme. You never see the same thing twice. Um, there are structural trends and inputs that matter that do relate almost exactly to what we saw in the 70s. But that does not mean that's all that matters, and that does not mean the environment, the structural realities of financial markets are the same. Uh, that is something that you have to understand. You have to see the positioning and understand the reflexivity underneath it and what that can do to pass. Those are those are great points here. Let me just uh, jump in uh, real quick and then and then I'll run. Thank you guys for having me on. Um, so uh, I, I totally agree on positioning. Uh, again, want to highlight that uh, oil isn't really what we use. We use refined products. And so when you look last year, there was a price shock, um, but that was driven by $120 oil plus roughly $60 refining margins at the peak. And as the last bear said, also a simultaneous move in natural gas prices, which have come down, you know, 60 to 75% uh, from, from their levels last year. So there's been sort of this shift, both in lower refining margins, which I would argue are likely to go lower, not higher from here, as well as lower uh, natural gas prices, which, which may rise a little, but seem unlikely absent an extreme uh, weather event uh, to rise materially, um, setting things up where it's actually almost deflationary, even if oil picks up modestly like we've seen and um you know totally agree like every past period is different they sort of rhyme and and the the things i think from a potential oil price spike perspective or risk perspective the things to watch are one the very low rig count in the u.s which is just starting to translate into disappointing u.s production versus expectations and again the u.s is a major oil producer so running a hundred fewer rigs than we likely need to uh, hit production targets uh, is going to have a real impact. And then also China, where the sort of um, myths of China's implosion have been sort of overstated and China's uh, growing, it looks like from a oil as well as other perspective, low single digits, which is very different from falling and is having real impacts on oil as well as other commodities. So I should... Uh, run here, but uh, thank you guys very much for having me on. And this was really interesting. It was great to get your guys' different perspectives on this. Hey, it was great to have you here, given your perspective as well, Josh. Thank you so much for chiming in. Now, before we move on, does anybody have any last comments to what Joseph said there? All right. So I know that we've got about 15, 14 minutes here until we get the drop and then another half hour for the presser. So one thing that I want to touch on before we get there, and I'm going to kick this over to Joseph first, and then I obviously would love to hear everybody on the panel's thoughts. So we're going to pivot back to that topic of inflation here. Even though core inflation for July came in at 3.2% or 0.1% lower than projected, PCE core remains, quote, sticky. Quincy Crosby of LPL Financial said that, quote, the PCE index has been moving in the right direction overall, but remains stickier than expected. So, Joseph, as always, I'd love your input here. Is core inflation indeed moving in the right direction? And from your perspective here, what must the Fed do moving forward to get this number down? I, yeah, so what PC inflation, core PC has been coming down, so it, it definitely is moving in the right direction. 
I think from their perspective, I think they're thinking about two things. One is that you know, economic strength has been greater than expected. And traditionally speaking, you'd think that having economic growth above uh, potential growth, above trend, would have inflationary impulses. I'm not sure that's true, but I think that's traditionally how it's thought of. And so, you have to, so I think they're cautious about that. And the second thing is that I think when, and Bob has talked about this as well, is that when, when the Fed is trying to get inflation back to where they want it to be, there's also a time element here. So they are afraid that if it takes too long to get inflation back to where they want it to be, maybe inflation expectations will become de-anchored and that makes it more difficult in the long run. So far, however, inflation expectations by their measurements have been very well anchored. So that gives them, I think, more breathing space to be able to approach this in a leisurely way. So I don't think that they're very, I don't think they're very pressed right now, very urgent because all things are going in the right direction. And from their perspective, uh, inflation expectations are anchored. Thank you, Joseph. And real quick, I just wanted to comment that currently this macro space is the largest space on the website. So thank you all for coming. And thanks to all of our panelists, obviously, for being here to educate us. It's pretty awesome. Now, before we move on a bit, does anybody have any comments to what Joseph just said? I, I would um, chime in to just just talk about <clears throat> duration uh, of inflation above target. And I think that that is uh, and, and Joseph is spot on in terms of in terms of mentioning that, because in a lot of ways, I think you want to think about an inflationary dynamic as being a bit of a race between uh, the duration that inflation remains elevated above target uh, increases the entrenchment of inflation in all sorts of different ways, whether it's wages, whether it's contract prices, sort of joking about that in the sense of, well, I'm sitting here like an email came in from one of our vendors and we're having a fight about whether the contract this year should be, you know, a 5% reset, a 10% reset, you know, that kind of gives you a sense as to that's a real entrenchment dynamic that's going on right now. And that's a race between that and the cooling of the economy and the bringing and the resolving of the sort of inflationary impulse into the economy that, um, that starts to bring measured inflation down. And those two things are basically, you know, the, racing to the finish line. Like, will entrenchment happen versus will it come down fast enough? And I think if you look at what's going on right now, you know, the path that is being talked about, at least, you know, in the Fed and others' uh, perspective, that we're going to get back down durably to 2%, say, in 2024, maybe 2025, you know, that leaves a long time that inflation has been above, uh, ex you know, above the target. And on top of that, I think, you know, that I, I don't know if everyone got a chance to read that IMF paper on 100 inflationary uh, periods, which is, you know, folks should should take 10 minutes out of their day to, to read that. I think one of the biggest lessons when you look back through time is that the, the that if you uh, if you are if you prematurely celebrate the end of inflation, that often causes inflationary piece, periods to extend. And so you sort of put that whole dynamic together. And the question is like, are we in the sort of situation where 
all of these things are combining to get that, you know, we're a little too happy and a little too confident that inflation is going to come down. And we're also okay with it coming down over a little too long a period. And is that setting us up for, you know, a higher inflationary environment than is acceptable, say, over the next, you know, two or three years, that, and, and a higher inflationary environment that than the bond market and the Fed are expecting? Thank you, Bob. So I do want to tie in here. We've got about nine minutes before we get some information. But I want to tie in that topic of recession here again before I kick back to Bob to pick on him a bit about a piece he wrote on the 60-40 investment. Um, but first, many feel that the recession concerns on Wall Street have dissipated throughout the year of 2023. But the New York Fed maintains its projection of around a 61% chance that the U.S. enters a recession within the next 12 months. Now, last bear, I'd love your take on this, and then obviously the panel kick in if you'd like. Are we still on trajectory for a recession, or or do you think those voicing the dissipation of that concern more in the right here? So, I think for a lot of the past year, especially you know, in in, spa in these spaces that we've had over the past nine months or so, I've commented a lot about the strength and resilience of the economy, um, especially as um, you know, rate hikes were calling many to to sort of call for a recession that has you know already not happened. Um, but I do think that it's important to continue looking forward and looking at sort of the rate of change of a lot of different sort of metrics, key metrics, whether that be unemployment, whether that be uh, gains in uh, payrolls, whether it be gains in wages, um, gains in, or you know, changes in job openings, all of the rate of change uh, sort of metrics that we can look at are not improving um, and are uh, you know, deteriorating, even if they are sort of in, in the positive category. And so I think that as much as the resilience has kind of, been surprising to a lot of people. Um, I think one of the bright spots definitely was housing. Um, we've seen some recent data that suggests that that maybe has rolled over a little bit as mortgage rates now have come back to sort of the peaks or above the peaks that they were in November of last year. Um, you know, they had come off by about a percent or more from November to January, which is really when we started to see sort of a rebound in a lot of the housing metrics. And now sort of as those mortgage rates have come back up, it seems like the optimism in that sector has rolled over to a two degree. Um, just even looking at the non-farm non payroll gains on a monthly basis with all the different revisions that have come in in recent months, um, you just continue to see a trajectory that doesn't look like signs of improvement that have you know lasted for well over a year at this point. Um, even the point on consumer credit, um, it's not to say that there's a massive problem that's going to blow up the economy, but more just an indication about sort of general weakening amongst some part of the consumer spectrum. Um, and so I think that all of those factors are also weighing into the Fed's decision. Um, in addition to sort of the, you know, their views on inflation, I think that there is going to be more cautiousness around the state of the economy over not over tightening. Um, if you think about uh, you know, unemployment rates or unemployment, people who are unemployed for over 15 weeks or 27 weeks, those metrics are definitely ticking up. And in a way that I think that the Fed is going to start to become more concerned with, even as sort of the, the broad perception is that, you know, maybe we're headed towards a soft landing. I think that people need to continue to look into the, you know, look forward as opposed to backwards and see that the trends 
ultimately are, are not heading in the right direction. So I just focus on sort of rate of change of a lot of those key categories. Um, and there's not a lot of positive that I can find in, in those categories. So anybody on the panel, feel free to chime in on Last Bear's comments there. Well, I think this is a, a classic circumstance when you're trading markets that you want to think about. Um, you got to think about expectations. And we went from a period and, and then how things will play out relative to expectations. We went from a period, you know, a year ago where there were like 100 percent expectations of a recession, uh, which obviously didn't materialize for many of the reasons talked about it you know, on these panels. But, you know, I noted it was about about six weeks ago. I look, you know, when the Atlanta Fed GDP now printed at 6%, which in and of itself is implausible, and also, you know, was basically the peak of this idea that we're really going to have, um, we're going to have, you know, no landing or, or a, a soft landing. And I think, you know, the expectations have just shifted so much in terms of, you know, in the in the in the surveys of investors, you have something like 75, 80, 85 percent of people saying that we're going to have a soft landing or no landing. You have equity markets pricing in 12 percent earnings growth in 24 and 25. Like expectations are, you know, close to 100 percent in, in the markets and among participants that we're going to have a soft landing or no landing. And, you know, just as Last Bear has highlighted, all the momentum of all of these indicators of economic activity are weakening. And so it's like, you know, what are the what's the probability that we have a recession? You know, it's 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 not certainly it's certainly not 100 percent, but it's certainly a lot higher than 10 or 15 percent that's being priced into the market. And that's what makes it that's that's what makes a trade. It's not a, a certainty, but a pretty good probability relative to what current expectations are. And I think we're seeing pretty much the widest gap uh, that we've seen between expectations and the probability that we'll likely get a recession uh, that we've seen in a long time. So uh, I likened it back to kind of how the summer of 2008 felt. Uh, Feels very similar in that sense where everyone's trying to rationalize economic, you know, continued economic growth while you know, everything around them was getting worse and worse. Uh, we've probably seen a little bit of the same today. I think expectations of a recession are somewhat self-defeating because when the market expects that, then they price in Fed rate cuts, they go and they buy duration, they go and they buy, let's say, tech stocks, which I think are traditionally associated with, you know, Fed cuts rates, eases monetary policy because of recession. And so we got to buy these assets. But when this happens, of course, uh, financial conditions ease, and it makes it less likely for there to be a recession to take place. It's really when everyone thinks that, you know, things are going well, pricing out rate cuts, um, interest rates go higher, then, then I think that there actually is some, some more constraint from, from, from um, financial conditions and making it more likely for there to be a recession. Absolutely. Reflexivity. Uh, it, it is so important to this market. I can't even uh, reiterate. And particularly so right now, I, uh, the one thing, you know, I'm going to pound on my uh, hobby horse, which is the, the vol markets uh, sounds to most people that is a tangential weird corner of the market. It is so critical to outcomes and the market structure, particularly now more than ever. Um, 
as interest rates are uh, going up and market outcomes for the last two years have not been so hot all in, uh, you start to see people looking at structured products saying, well, I can get five and a half percent under the hood or five percent under the hood. And then I can stack on top of that another three percent or so for relatively low risk. Eight percent structured products sound great, non-correlated. And those types of things are driving massive vol compression at the bank level, which is driving massive vol supply, all tied to the S&P 500. This is why we're seeing record dispersion in the markets. It is also a massive driver of just pinning of markets. And the more that goes on, the more we start to see other structural flows tied to that kicking in and dominating. And that is never more important than it is at the end of the year. Uh, everybody needs to be aware that at the end of the year, seasonality is not a magical construct. You have 60% of the volume weighted time that you do at any other time of the year. This accelerates this vol compression and the delta buyback that's tied to it. That is a massive effect in November and December. And when the market is up, which is now almost 20% up for the year, what happens? You have a massive reset of collateral reinvestment that comes in the end of the year. That is why the Santa Claus rally and January effect exist. People do not understand why that one month is so dramatically more positive than any other time of the year. Not only is it the Ivana and Charm Post, but even more importantly, in a year where the market's up 20%, you're getting another $2 trillion or so, right? Uh, or sorry, you know, $8 trillion of collateral enhancements that over, over the course of the year, of which somewhere around $2 trillion goes to work at the beginning of the year. That is a massive amount relative to flows. So just be aware, there's much more than all the macro and the, everything we're talking about. Reflexivity, the positioning in the market itself is dominant in the short term. In the long run, macro will matter. But uh, you have to be aware of these cycles and the flows. And that is particularly true as we sit here in mid-September, um, teasing out towards October. Um, you have to pay attention to what sits behind it in November and December in a big up year where vol is well supplied. Thank you, Jim. So it looks like we've got our drop. The Fed has decided for another pause. So we're just going to give folks a few moments here to digest. Look at those dots. Man, ah, yeah, I, median 2024, <laughs> 5.1, median 2025, 3.9. Look at them dots up, up, and away. So, the 2024 median has been moved up 50 basis points. So, that's pencil in, you know, two more hikes. Well, not two more hikes, sorry, fewer cuts than, uh, than it projected last time in June. And, and, like I mentioned, I was really paying attention to um, our star, which it seems like it's the median is still 0.5% real, but again, the distribution has again shifted higher. And for those, if, if y'all don't mind, for those who aren't familiar with the dot plots or someone new to reading dot plots, could you kind of just a brief overview on what that means? So at every quarter, so March, June, September, um, December, FOMC participants, they pencil in where they think that the uh, policy rate will be at certain periods in, at the end of this year, at the end of next year, and at, at the end of uh, two years from now. And so this is basically to communicate, to just uh, try to communicate where the committee thinks that policy will be going. And there's, you know, usually 
a dispersion because every committee member has their own viewpoints. And so what we focus on is the median here to, to kind of figure out what the FOMC is trying to signal. And as was mentioned, they're guiding towards uh, a rate path that is higher than there was in June. And uh, this is you know, kind of in recognition to the fact that economic growth is much stronger than expected. In June, they were projecting 1% for this year. Now they're projecting 2.1%. So that's a sizable upgrade. And 2024 was also upgraded higher. And to correspond with that stronger um, growth, they also revised up their expected path policy. Oh, just another disclaimer. This thing sometimes can be very wrong, okay? So it's kind of just what they think right now and things could change later on and can make all of this obsolete. So uh, keep that in mind. Thank you, Joseph. So, so, so the, the Fed can yeah. be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, I, I think interesting, I, I just want to refine that a little bit more in terms of interesting, the statement basically changed nothing, um, which is kind of, kind of notable. Um, and so really they're looking for the dots to do, to do the hard work for them um, in order to, to bring things, you know, to, to get things done. I'd also emphasize just going back to our inflation conversation, you know, we're starting to see what well, we have, you know, 2026 uh, here on, on the page. And, you know, the Fed is penciling out a situation where PCE inflation doesn't get to 2%. Uh, until 2026. Now, I think this, 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 you know, this is a little bit of uh, reading the tea leaves between these things, but it is interesting to see that they're willing to be cutting rates um, and they're sort of willing in through these projections to indicate that they're going to accept an above, they're, they're going to look for two to 3% inflation to be comfortable uh, to start shifting to easing rather than, you know, really at that 2% mark. So you sort of get a sense as to what the reaction function here is uh, in terms of uh, how they're thinking about it. Les Bear, I'd love your thoughts on this as well, given what's been said so far. Yeah, I was just um, taking a minute to look at market reaction. It seems like through the sort of, I mean, through the treasury yield curve, everything's up maybe about 10 basis points from before the meeting. Um, less than that if you look from the beginning of the day, but obviously rates are up um, substantially based on, I'm sure that, that you know, unexpected dot plot rise, um, equities down a little bit, but but not too much. So I think that is definitely a surprise. I, I was a little bit surprised to see the level of increase, but I guess it makes sense in the context of um, the growth projections and sort of consistent, um, you know, the, the increase in growth projections relative to the prior dot plots. Thank you, Last Bear. Jim, any remarks to add after a cursory glance here? Honestly, I'm just uh, I'm, I'm trying to put a couple of trades in here. <laughs> I uh, this uh, look the the way the ball structure was just market wise uh, was was such that uh, short dated calls were very bid across the market, uh, and as those come in, we've seen a little. Uh, liquidation that's a little bit counter trend to what you normally see uh, going into these events. Usually this put skew is very big. So that is causing a little bit of a pullback here short term, which is, again, very different than what we usually see in terms of setup. So if you're kind of watching inside baseball, this pullback makes sense after the number, regardless of the outcome. That said, the structural realities haven't changed. And so I would kind of point everybody to, to you know. Don't look at the what happens in each one. Look at under the hood what, what the positioning is. That that'll give you the best indicator for for what's likely to come. 
Thank you, Jim. And so now since, you know, we've had a cursory glance here at, at the FOMC, uh, the topic of the markets itself, market reaction, et cetera, has come up a few times during the panel. I've been kind of putting off bringing her up, but I'm going to now. So one topic we've revisited in the past on these panels, haven't really dived deep dived them rather, is that of that traditional 60-40 investment strategy. So I'm going to pick on you a bit here, Bob. You were recently on CB Overtime to discuss this, and you had said stocks down, bonds down, gold up, and oil up. Quote, that's about the worst possible scenario for the 60-40 investor. So, Bob, can you walk us through some of that thought process and maybe maybe touch a bit on whether or not you see these issues persisting through the end of the year, especially given this additional Fed pause? Yeah, happy to. We're, we're, um, we're, we're shifting uh, a little bit in terms of our time perspective from... Uh, from uh, the volatility structuring, uh, you know, in the in the minutes and hours ahead of this meeting, uh, an announcement to uh, you know how investors should think about their portfolios with a more strategic time frame over sort of three to five years. So most investors aren't trading day to day; um, they're not in a position to be meaningfully and agilely shifting their allocations, and so um, instead, are, you know, have long term strategic portfolios that are basically 60 40 that's you know in one form or another that's what they have and the issue is that if you think about what drives equity market outperformance and what drives uh bond market outperformance it's basically higher growth than expected and lower inflation than expected and part of the dynamic that we have going on right now and i I picked that particular day but um but you know the sort of general feel of what we have right now is we basically have an environment where um, where growth is decelerating and will likely be below what, you know, the elevated expectations that certainly that we were talking about um, uh, a few minutes ago before the announcement. And then also an environment where for a variety of reasons, there's upward pressure on bond yields. And the outcome of that is we're getting basically stock bond correlations that are about as positive as they've been in 20 or 30 years which means that the diversifying benefits from bonds are just a lot, uh, you know, just aren't aren't there. We sort of have all structured portfolios on the expectation that bonds would diversify stocks. And if that doesn't happen, then you're sort of left open to um, to to not, you know, to basically, uh, you know, underperform and 6040 in particular underperforming during a period of elevated tightening. And also a period where inflation is more durable, more persistent than expectations. And so, you know, most investors, I'd say, if you're looking at a three to five year time frame, what you want to do is you want to prepare your portfolio for that range, you know, for that range of outcomes. If you're if you're betting on 60-40, you're basically all in on one particular economic outcome, disinflationary growth. So how do you think about structuring a portfolio? And that may happen, but it doesn't mean it will happen. And many other dynamics may happen. And so how do you think about structuring a portfolio that, for instance, if we have stagflation or if we have inflationary growth, what does well in those environments? And that's really where you can bring to your portfolio assets like, you know, the most diversifying assets to a 60-40 portfolio are basically three things, gold, commodities, and uh, what I like to call diversified alpha, alpha strategies. Um, And, you know, most people don't have those in their portfolio. And so it's time to start considering 
that you know we may have economic environments that are not disinflationary growth, and so therefore prepare yourself uh, to to do that. And and it doesn't take much. I mean, even ten percent in gold, ten percent in oil, or in diversified commodities, and ten percent in diversified alpha can you know meaningfully improve uh, your portfolio outcomes around a range of different circumstances. Thank you, Bob. Last bear, I'd love your take here as well. Given your your great outlook in 2022 on U.S. tech, how are you feeling now? Is is the 60-40 notion currently dead in the water? Um, I, I don't know that I could have a better or, you know, have looked too much at the 60-40 correlation dynamics that, that Bob was just touching on. Um, I guess just as a sort of a market commentary, maybe it's a little bit of speculation, which probably all market commentary is to some degree. Um, I do think that we were at a period where, um, you know, f- during sort of, let's say the 2022 bear market, I think a lot of that was digesting sort of the change from a financial perspective and, and sort of spot rates going up from 1% to, you know, something much greater than that across the curve. And, um, you know, fear about what that might do to the economy and to financial institutions. Obviously we saw, um, the implications of that in a lot of financial institutions during that time period. Um, but then I think the, the rebound this past year has been largely driven by continued, you know, the, the continued resilience or strength in the actual economy. And so as we sort of digested a lot of those large rate hikes and any, any incremental rate hikes from here are not going to be too significant, um, you know, that there, we've seen this big rebound. But it's possible um, from my perspective that now as um, – if economic growth continues to slow and as sort of the lagging effects of monetary policy continue, um, you may start to see um, more of a cyclical decline based on sort of underlying economic data come through. Um, but at the same time, I, I'm not 100% you know, confident in, in that outlook either. I think corporate earnings have been basically have plateaued for about a year right now. So um, we've had corporate margins compress at the same time that top line revenue growth has continued to be positive and that's left basically flat earnings um and they actually i think ticked up just a tiny bit in the most recent quarter which is the first uptick that we've seen um and so i think it's really important to not just look at sort of the macro stuff if you're thinking about markets but also look at sort of the corporate dynamics um generally speaking if corporations are earning you know have higher earnings are beating expectations um, it's going to lead to higher stock prices, um, in, at least in the short term. So I think that there's a lot of, a lot of dynamics at play, but that's uh, kind of a, a long-winded take on it. Thank you, Last Bear. Does anyone else have any comments on that? Uh, maybe Joseph or Jim? I do want to touch a little bit on the housing market. That's something that's been really making waves in conversation lately. Uh, so... With concerns on that, in August, housing starts fell to the lowest level since 2020. Meanwhile, the interest rates remain around or above 7%. Given that housing itself has set up fairly well in general over the last few years compared to other sectors, what concerns arise from a drop in that housing market? So I want to start with Last Bear here and then kick it around a little bit here. Yeah, I mean, I would just go back to the point I I raised earlier. I I would say that mortgage rates haven't actually been static. They sort of peaked about almost a year ago in November of last year, and then they dropped by a percent. And I think that 
that drop in mortgage rates corresponded with an uptick in activity. And as that sort of now mortgage rates have, have come back to be even higher than they were um, at that point in late 2022, um, it's probably not surprising that you've seen um, that activity or sort of that resurgence definitely start to slow. I think it's always hard to see, you know, one data point as, as being a trend. There definitely was a tr- positive trend um, in the housing market for much of this year. I think it remains to be seen um, what happens going forward. But obviously, the, the most recent data has been um, definitely more negative um, on that front. So it's definitely something to continue to keep an eye on. Does anyone have any additional housing comments? I think one comment that I would make, and Michael Cowell, who's here, ha- has been making this a lot as well, is that housing demand in the housing market is in part due to demographics. I think the Toll Brothers CEO gave a really good call last month where he was talking about uh, trying to explain persistent strength. And he, he was noting that housing is in part a financial decision, but it is ultimately a life decision. People get married, they need to have a place to live, they want their kids to be in the right place. And demographically, we have a lot of people who, who are at that age who, who want to buy a home. And because there's not a lot of resale inventory, they're going to new construction. And a lot of new construction home builders can actually buffer them from high mortgage rates by buying the rate down. And so that's part of the reason why it seems like the housing market is resilient. And when you're thinking about the relationship between housing and GDP, a lot of that is new construction. Because when you actually go and build things, you know, you hire labor, you're, you're, you're adding to GDP. If you're just shuffling around resale homes, that's not so much. And so if it's demographic, you know, that's something that would persist. And I'd also note that a lot of the people buying homes today, part of it are what people call, I think, active adult communities, where you have boomers who benefited from tremendous home price appreciation and are now just downsizing or buying a place closer to where their adult children are. So not all segments of the market are being impacted by mortgage rates. That's something that could continue. Thank you, Joseph. Jem, I see your hand. Yeah, I think to to Joseph's point, you know, the real estate market is not a monolith. Again, similar to the talk about interest rates, we always like to oversimplify. And and in this world where things are less cyclical and uh, less uh, two-dimensional, um, we you know we're used to being lazy uh, in, in analysis because all that mattered was up or down. In this in this market, things are very different. Uh, we're talking about rotation of wealth to different parts of the population. And so what you're going to get is different outcomes for different segments of real estate. Uh, that's, that's simply not just, uh, you know, socioeconomically, like in terms of stratification, but also by age and generation, which, which speaks to uh, localities and, and urban versus rural. It also speaks to commercial uh, versus residential. Um, you know, if you're taking money away from planet Palo Alto, Guess what? You're just going to need less commercial space. We already have lots of problems related to that related to COVID anyway. But uh, if you keep sending that money down to the people, um, that is embedded demand. And again, there's a demand push economy. I think it's so critical to understand baby like, m- millennials are at 40 percent of the wealth creation um, or, or thereabouts relative to baby boomers at this time in their life cycle. And so there's so much pent up demand. Yes. Uh, you know, interest rates are are high. But if if somebody has a secure job, is having kids for the first time, needs to buy that home, and they've uh, delayed buying that home for a decade, um, it doesn't matter as long as that you know their their wages are going up to some extent. There is just 
pent up demand and the amount of supply is minimal, uh, increasing from incredibly low levels. But there is almost no supply as a function of interest rates going higher and people being locked into lower interest rates. So you have a, a low supply, high demand environment. Um, yes, are interest rates ultimately going to affect things over the long run? Yes, there's a dramatic lag, though. And it's important to look at everything in that context. I think that's a really good point to make, Jim, especially considering, you know, just in terms of affordability, the the median sales price for homes is now equal to, I think it was 560% of the median household income. So, I mean, I, I could see that just maintaining problematic tendencies as well. Bob, I see your hand. Did you have something to add there as well? Well, I think um, part of the housing situation, I think, is a lens into the sort of more global problem that the Fed is facing, which is, you know, we don't at this point have a price of credit problem. Interest rates are pretty elevated. If you're, you know, borrowing for a mortgage, you know, it's at 7% or higher, like that's pretty high and even pretty high relative to, you know, income growth and things like that. Um, Or if you're a corporation, you know, borrowing, I don't know, to, to, to fund an acquisition, you know, you're at, at so for plus 400 basis points, if you're, uh, you know, doing a PE deal, things like that. So, you know, that, that's pretty high, you know, those are, those are high interest rates. Um, so we don't really have a price of credit problem. We have an asset price problem uh, in the economy from the Fed's perspective. That's the core problem that we have, which is that house prices are incredibly high and still up, you know, meaningfully from pre-COVID equity prices are not that far off from peaks. And so you put that together and and what we see is we see households who feel pretty wealthy, um, who, ha- you know, many households that feel pretty wealthy and that can continue to spend and frankly run lower savings rates because their asset prices are so elevated. Um, and so don't need to put away as much on a month to month basis as they would if asset prices were lower. And so all of that speaks to the fact that um, that the, the, the interest rate tool is probably not the most effective tool for the Fed here, and which is why they're probably going to ease off that tool. Certainly on the short end, it's less effective. While they'll probably rely on a long end bear steepening to sort of do the dirty work, really focused on bringing asset prices down. And so if you sort of put that whole picture together, so the reality is the most effective monetary policy that the Fed could be doing right now is to stop talking about short-term interest rates and start talking about variable QT. But, you know, nothing nothing yet, because QT most directly affects asset prices in the economy. And if you had an asset price problem, not a price of credit problem, then they should be really targeting the asset prices to start to bring them down. I think really good commentary to make there as well. I saw someone on mute there. Did you have something to add? I agree completely with Bob. I think it makes a lot of sense to, to try to push up longer dated yields as a way to put downward pressure on asset prices. I'm, I'm not sure that's what the Fed would do, but I think the Treasury is, I think, uh, helplessly moving towards that direction because as we all know, issuance is very large and having tremendous amounts of Treasury issuance is, you know, is would functionally be like the Fed accelerating QT. Now, actually, I think the uh, Treasury has been trying to 
not do that by slightly moving their percentage of bill issuance higher than, than they usually do, but it's not going to be meaningful because at the end of the day, uh, there's a lot of financing that needs to be uh, issued. And so eventually, I think that aggregated yields will actually move up and maybe significantly as many of us here have been discussing over the past several sessions. Thank you, Joseph. So like I always like to do here before we move along into the presser, I want to go around the panel here, just get some closing thoughts on what we've discussed, things you're looking forward to. And of course, if you have anything to plug or to direct people towards that you're working on, feel free to do so. And as well, when you're kind of going through closing thoughts, feel free to feel free to elaborate a little bit as much as you want. We've got about another month and a half uh, before the next FOMC meeting. So anything you feel we didn't get to touch on, feel free to bring it up. We can kick her off here with Jim. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, I'm going to just reiterate, uh, you know, the you know, time is not a bear's friend. Uh, there has been much ado about whether it's credit card data or slowing of growth. Um, it, it's more of the same that we've been talking about. Will that all matter eventually? Will we go into recession eventually if the Fed continues to raise rates, uh, if, you know, which they will if this market continues to rip and if the economy continues to hang in? So, yes, we are heading there, but it is a function, uh, just like anything, of timing. Um, I think uh, as we sit here going into an election year next year into an uh, increasingly seasonally positive period again the seasonals are not just magic uh they you know they're driven by demand functions that we understand um you know as you enter this period uh, it is easy to get caught in the macro narrative and get forced back in um uh it it would make complete sense for this market to to continue to defy the odds um in, in the context of the macro um and then uh right when everybody kind of throws in the towel, um, you know, this is how these things end, whether it's 2000, whether it's 2000, uh, you know, seven, eight, uh, you know, there's so many periods here that we all knew the macro writing was on the wall for years, but that didn't mean the last part of the rally wasn't the most extreme and the most painful. Um, so the macro is bad for equities um, good for consumers, and uh, it is a much less two-dimensional world. So um, my advice to people is play the rotations that you're seeing. That is a, a trend that you will continue to see as the market is pinned at its center and volatility is increasing from a macro liquidity perspective, unpinning the fringes. So expect lots of historic rotation, more breadth breakdowns, more really, really historic kind of moves asset to asset. But if you're just watching the headline index and you're trying to short it, you're going to get yourself into to trouble in the months to come. Thank you, Jim. Let's move over here to Joseph. Any closing thoughts? Anything you'd like to plug that you got coming out? Nope. First of all, thanks so much for having me. It was great being here. I always learn a lot when I'm here. I think something to keep in mind as we go forward is that we will also enter a time where I think maybe there'll be more economic pain. And so the political 
aspects of monetary policy become more salient. Uh, we, we see this in Canada, we see this happening across the world, and eventually we'll see this in the U.S. as well. So I think ultimately going forward, we're going to have to see just politically and culturally, what is the trade-off um, the public is willing to make between uh, maybe a slower economic growth, higher unemployment, and, and inflation. So the, I think the future of monetary policy is going to be more politically driven going forward than than it is just based upon data. Um, so if you're interested in hearing more about my thoughts, I do have a YouTube channel and I will post an FOMC debrief on it later on. Channel name is just Joseph Wayne. Thank you, Joseph. Definitely check out that channel. His, uh, his follow-ups to the FOMC meetings and pressers are usually pretty solid, as you can imagine. So thanks again, Joseph. Bob, any last comments or anything you wanted to touch on or plug before we jump into the presser? Uh, you know, I think it's going to come. It's going to come down to to bonds. I think a lot of us, uh, a lot of a lot of folks in the market, like to spend a lot of time talking about stocks, but uh, this market is driven by bonds. Um, and so, uh, if we continue to see the sort of long end bear steepener type dynamic that uh, is going to play out, then that's going to be a big driver of everything that's going on. Um, and so, and if we don't, then, you know, we can continue to have the sort of elevated asset prices that we do. Um, thanks so much for having me. Uh, all, honestly, always, always fun. Uh, and uh, at least I uh, feel like today was a little bit of a, a little bit exciting uh, in terms of uh, some uncertainty about what the Fed was going to kind of do, particularly with their dots. And uh, so it was a lot of fun. Uh, probably more uncertainty ahead. Uh, for those of you who don't follow me on Twitter, I'm at Bobby Unlimited, where I write about macro stuff all the time. Uh, and my day job is uh, at Unlimited, where we uh, create uh, hedge fund replication ETFs, uh, which you can check out at unlimitedetfs.com. Definitely check all that out, folks. And thanks again, as always, for coming, Bob. Last bear, anything you want to send folks off into the presser with that you had on mind? Um, no, just thanks, guys, for having me on the panel. Um, you can follow me on Twitter, and you can uh, subscribe to my Substack if you're interested. Um, I would just reiterate um, two points that were made by other panelists. One, that I agree that this is a demand-driven economy, um, but it's important to also note if that is starting to shift. Um, and then the second point about expectations. I think that was a great point by Bob, which is uh, from a market perspective, always keep in mind what's the likely outcome versus expectations. So I know Pal's on now, so I'll leave it at that. But thanks, guys. Thank you, Last Bear, as always. All right, folks, Powell is on now. We're going to kick over to the presser here for audio and then twitch.tv slash unusual whales for the video. Just quick shout, we have another space coming up on September 28th where we'll be discussing congressional trading and lobbying with three separate congressional members. Thanks again, everybody.